expert go-to business law attorney here at our business law and personal injury firm that is Jordan Law here in Central Florida. This is our formerly podcast turned Facebook live show during the coronavirus pandemic, so we can get a little bit more FaceTime here for people. Um, our original guest for today had to unfortunately cancel due to you know a job and everything else going on with that, so Blair was nice enough to step in. And so what we did is we compiled some of the stuff that Blair's been up to um, some presentations, some things we put together as it relates to basically having to pay money, getting people to pay money, and not having to pay as much money during coronavirus. So we'll be talking about uh, force majeure clauses. We'll be talking about um, some of the different things there, collections issues and whatnot that'll come up as it relates to the pandemic. And hopefully this will be helpful and timely for everybody. So before I start picking Blair's brain and we get his wonderful wisdom here. Um, I want to talk about our YouTube page. For those of you that have been watching these videos and like the videos, want to subscribe to our YouTube page. Mark's going to drop the link here. Uh, what we do for the YouTube page is we've got a number of these videos. We will also cut out specific segments afterwards to be a little bit more timely. And we've got some videos that just go on YouTube. So if you want to keep in touch with us when it comes to the video stuff that we put out, you want to go ahead and click on over from here and subscribe to that YouTube channel. So enough about me. Um, tomorrow we'll have Andy Storch on, who's going to talk to us about growing a business and hiring and delegating and all those sorts of things. And with that, let's hear some wisdom from Blair. Welcome. I'll try to bring some wisdom. Welcome. Hey, How are you doing? Hey, I, good, man. How about you? Good. I think people may think that we talk all the time or we see each other all the time, but we physically have not seen each other, been in the same room for weeks on end. So how are you doing overall? What's your general impression of how you and your family have navigated the, the virus? The, uh, uh, I think yeah. I think better than we expected, you know, all things considered. We had this, you know, like uh, we've had a couple people on who have talked about this from the, the brain science therapy standpoint, you know, just the human brain isn't wired for coronavirus. It's not wired for that unseen oncoming, you know, six to eight weeks of added stress. It's wired for a lion, a tiger, a bear, oh my, trying to kill you and that fight, flight, or freeze from there. Right. Um, so, you know, we, uh, we've we done better than I considered. And then obviously, you know, the uh, my two-year-old son, Benjamin, has no idea what's going on and just knows that we don't go outside as much. We haven't been to SeaWorld or the Science Center or whatnot along those lines. So, you know, we're, uh, we're making the best of it as one could hope for everybody. What about you all? Yeah, same thing. I think that we go, sort of my wife and I, we emotionally go through peaks and valleys, you know, and, and oftentimes not at the same time, which is predictable as well. One day I wake up and I have a better mental attitude about it and she doesn't or, you know, vice versa. So trying to get each other on the same page. I'm, I'm there to pick her up, and she's there to pick me up. I guess. Oh, you know? it's called ba it's called balance, right? Relationship. You uh, exactly. one's yeah. high, one's low, and you guys meet in the middle. So. Yep, and we can stay far away from each other at uh, our house where we're working remotely. So that's that's proved to be important for our marriage. I think. So. There you go. Yeah, I just uh, you know it was funny for the first week or so when Heather and I were both working at the same table, and then you get done, you're like, hey, let's what you know, tell me about your day i'm like oh yeah you were you know three feet away and i could hear all of your conversations and there's a lot of whistling so, and just you know but, idle you know, time it, so yeah 
So we, uh, you know, everybody, everybody's making it work, and it seems like we're getting closer and closer to the end of this. So, but I guess we, uh, we won't know until we're looking about it in, uh, in retrospect here. But anyway, let's, uh, let's, let's circle back on the, on the topic here for our listeners. Sure. I know we want to be cognizant of everybody's time. Um, all right. So today, you know, we're talking about payment issues, and so I guess the first thing I don't want to talk about because it doesn't really fit in the context of the rest of it. I want to talk about the force majeure clauses. I know we've had. You know, a number of clients reach out that had commercial leases. Some of them had the clause. Some of them didn't have the clause. Some of them had exclusions in the clause. Some of them have inclusions in the clause. So at the very beginning, when we're talking force majeure, I mean, what are we talking about here from that 10,000-foot viewpoint? Yeah, and I actually um, looked up the Black's Law Dictionary version of this because I was on a panel previously, and I heard a number of different definitions, and it seems like a lot of people, we, we, we seem to not necessarily agree on on uh, you know, a, a proper working definition for that. So okay. Black's Law Dictionary would define it as, it's, it, force majeure is actually French for superior force. Makes sense. Or it's an event or an effect that can neither be anticipated or controlled. Okay, so uh, usually what we're talking about in that context is floods down here in Florida. We're talking about hurricanes. But they can also be man-made as well. Uh, wars, riots, strikes, different things of that nature. So those constitute uh, a lot of the force majeure language that are in agreements. And some of them will actually identify examples of what that would look like, like a, a storm or a tornado or a natural disaster or something like that. Of course, now it's being applied in this pandemic virus situation to varying degrees. So, um, you know, I, I like the idea of it being understood as a superior force that can't be anticipated or controlled, which then leads us to try to figure out whether it's impossible or incredibly inconvenient or impracticable to actually perform on the contract pursuant to whatever the force majeure is. So what we're talking about, I mean, for the most part, this is coming up in commercial leases. And so there's the potential that because, you know, we were locked at home, quarantined, whatever it was, unable to utilize the um, rented space, then you may not be financially responsible for the lease during that time frame. Is that, am I correct in that? Yes. Yeah. That's my understanding as well. All right. And so we've got a couple different iterations that, you know, we've seen from this. So I think let's, let's take the most obvious one. If you have signed a lease that has a force majeure clause that says, you know, if it is impossible for the property to be used based upon a pandemic or virus or something along those lines, then I think that's the most clear that we can get. You know, I don't think there's any other way for it to be more clear that it would apply to the situation than that. Right. Correct. I would agree with that. Now, the problem, though, is I haven't seen any that read that way. You know, what you have would be either, you know, let's let's start with if there is a force majeure clause, um, some of them will exclude certain things. So they will say it does not cover exclusions due to and, you know, it might be pandemics, viruses, something along those lines. And I think in that situation, we're talking about a pretty clear cut. It's not going to apply. Correct. Right, right. So what happens when we've got a force majeure clause in there, but we don't have any specific language as to what constitutes that act of God, 
larger force, whatever, then, then what has to happen? Well, then that's, um, and, and, you know, even before this pandemic, these are the kinds of issues that would be ripe for litigation, right? Um, in, in terms of what's actually going on now with, uh, with our being in lockdown and working remotely, I've explained to clients that this is sort of an invitation to a negotiation, right? Because we have some practical issues that we have to look at in terms of how we're going to get a court to rule on something like this. First and foremost, as we all know, as all attorneys know, um, most courthouses are essentially shut down, at least until July, uh, you know, unless we're talking about something of an emergency nature. So you're not going to quickly get a court to rule on whether the force majeure clause applies in this situation or not. So, um, and also the measure of damages, I think, is complicated by this a little bit as well, or the ability, like landlord-tenant law, a big part of that is whether the, um, uh, you know, the landlord is able to mitigate their damages, which would seem almost impossible in a situation like this. So I actually had the situation presented to me where someone said they wanted to break their lease, and the tack that we're taking is it's an invitation to a negotiation. I'm reaching out to the landlord to see what we can do to, you know, to resolve this matter without it having to go to court. So I want to I want to roll that back for a second. So obviously, well, I guess not obviously. Um, do you agree with me? Most leases don't have any force majeure provision in them. Am I correct in that? I, I think that's correct. Yeah, just anecdotally, right. Okay. So from the standpoint of this invitation to, you know, compromise or, or come to some sort of non, non, non-court enforced agreement, are you better off having a force majeure provision that doesn't, that doesn't include any specificity or are you better off having no provision, period? Um, no, I, I think it's probably better to have um, a force majeure clause that is, is as specific as possible and identifies as many different situations that would potentially, um, uh, you know, uh, allow you to, you know, to, to use the clause for whatever purpose, you know? Right. No, I totally agree with you on that. But what I'm saying is, you know, if we're talking about that invitation to negotiate, you know, uh, from the, uh, and I guess it's different depending on what perspective you are. From the tenant's perspective, you know, going to that landlord and saying, hey, you know, we've been locked down. We haven't had the chance to utilize the facilities for the last six weeks. Are they, is it more powerful for them to go with, and there is no force majeure provision in the lease? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know if we were talking about it from the landlord or tenant's perspective, but from the tenant's perspective, look, it's not addressed in the lease. And as you identified, in most cases, I don't believe it is. Although you can imagine now, right? these things are getting written as we speak, basically, like with specific language about pandemics, you know, maybe being excluded from the landlord perspective. But yeah, definitely from a tenant's perspective, look, there's nothing that governs this. And, uh, you know, you're not in a position where you can essentially throw me out at this particular point. That's my understanding of executive, various executive orders and things of that nature. So it's an invitation to a negotiation. We haven't addressed this issue in our lease, so let's address it now. Gotcha. And so, I mean, really at that point, anything can be agreed to if it's agreed to for the most part. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, I have a client right now that wants to get out of a long-term lease and uh, she hasn't had the ability to pay. And because she hasn't had the ability to pay, the landlords have been treating it. They said, okay, we're willing to defer on that until this, you know, until this pandemic is over and then we need to reassess our situation. And so I've already outreached to them, speak with them to say, this is a, a good time for us, I think, to allow her to be removed from the lease. Because, you know, if you want to uh, try and evict her for non-payment, good luck with some of the structural issues that we're having to deal with with the courthouse and being closed and so forth. You know? And so from the perspective of our business owner clients, you know, the majority of them are going to be the tenants in these situations. Um, so the, the ability there is, you know, for us to apply a little bit of leverage or explain to the landlord the uh, reasonableness, feasibility of the situation to find another tenant. Because I don't imagine, well, one, like you said, you know, you can't really evict people, at least, you know, from what Jason O'Neill told us a couple weeks ago. Um, that may change at some point. But and the same token, you know, I just don't see so many businesses going out interested in signing three year, five year, seven year leases at a time frame when everybody's learned that they can work from home with, uh, you know, somewhere between 75% efficiency, or some people have been telling us they're more efficient working from home because you no, get absolutely. less of the uh, cross chatter and whatnot. Absolutely. And I think my, my broader point is simply that before you, you know, people are calling me saying, can I breach this? Do I have to, I mean, can I just break this agreement? Uh, do I have to even acknowledge it? And, you know, the law is gray. At the best of times, sometimes, but especially in this area, the law was force majeure and so forth. So given that, I think it's probably from a cost benefit analysis perspective, much better from the tenant side to engage the landlord and say, here's my wish list or I can't pay for the remainder of this lease or can you let me out if I pay a smaller penalty, understanding that, you know, eviction, courthouse steps, you know, boom de boom de boom like it usually goes that 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 process is not available you know but and just but i know that's available to the landlord as well you know you have situations and i've been contacted by people that um don't you know uh necessarily want to keep moving on with that tenant and see it as an opportunity to maybe work something out with them where they could get them off the lease and then bring somebody else in. So it really works both ways. Yeah. yeah and, and one of the things that you kind of touched on there that I think we always need to stress to people is getting a piece of paper that says somebody or a business or a party owes you money is different than getting that party to actually pay you the money. So a, a tenant who says, I can't pay on a signed contract, you know, that's not a, that's, that's a relatively easy case to get an award of, uh, some amount of money, usually the value of the extent of that contract, but actually getting that money is, can be a completely different matter. Totally. The, uh, the, the collection aspect of it, and I often tell clients this, the, you know, sometimes the cause of action is a slam dunk. You've got an excellent case to bring a lawsuit. You're going to get a court to agree with you or a jury or whatnot. But then collecting from that individual or entity is sometimes and oftentimes the hardest part of the process. Right. And, and we're not even talking about, you know, you hear about all those giant uh, class action lawsuits where, you know, company X needs to pay $1.7 billion. And then everybody in the class, if you're not a named class member, gets like 17 cents. 
I mean, <laughs> right. We're talking about companies that you know can can go bankrupt, genuinely don't have the money, can slow play the money back, can you know require a whole nother case to be brought to actually enforce that's the judgment, right? Yeah, definitely. All right, so I think that's the really important part for us to jump off on. So we're going to talk now about collections, and so we're not just talking about the situation we explained there. I mean, really collection starts before that judgment, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that can be done to negotiate an amount owed in either direction before getting the court system involved. Definitely. Um, you know, pre-suit mediation, whether that's informal, which means you don't use a mediator, or whether it is formal that, in fact, you do use a mediator, uh, you know, getting together and putting your numbers together and figuring out if you actually went through court process, what does that look like in terms of damages? And in a lot of these situations, it's fairly cut and dry. You know, I, I, I don't do a, a, a large amount of landlord-tenant work, so we'll take real estate and put that to the side. But, you know, mortgage agreements and other things where pretty clear what money is owed pursuant to the contract. And unless there are breaches on both sides or whatever, if it's pretty clear that non-performance was failure to pay for the services rendered, you know, that's, that, that's going to be pretty easy to prove. Much better to try to resolve that before you get started with the lawsuit. All right. So let's talk, you know, so step one, you know, you're sitting there um, and, and let's start as you are the one who owes the money. So you are the one who assigned the contract to pay the money, not to provide the service. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, obviously we've got 25 something million people on unemployment. Um, and I'm assuming that number is going to continue to go higher and higher as people at least are able to get into the system for unemployment. I know Florida's had some issues with that. Um, but obviously that's a system that's not designed to take 10 times as many people in a week than it ever has in one week, you know, in, in history. Right. Um, so from that standpoint, I mean, that's, that goes back to that same thing we're talking about, that invitation to negotiate. Because just because there's a contract and just because you know you're going to breach, that doesn't necessarily mean there's automatically going to be a lawsuit because there can be, you know, any sort of an agreement that's legal between those parties to, you know, rewrite that or at least, you know, waive that breach or something along those lines. Correct. So what I typically do in those situations, if I understand your question correctly, client comes in to see me, admits that they owe a certain amount of money you know, to a collection agency now at this point or to some other entity, I think it's better to get ahead of that if you're the person that's owing the money. So right. what I advise them to do is gather up there, especially during this time right now. So, you know, they, I, I'm asking them, okay, well, tell me about your current financial situation. Uh, I was downsized because of the virus uh, or I'm on furlough. Uh, there's a possibility I may be able to come back uh, or, um, you know, I'm an employer. I uh, applied for the various loans, the PPP loan. I haven't received that money back yet or I've been denied or what have you. I want to get their financial picture so that I can then take that to the, the, the creditor and then just say, okay, well, here's what they, they acknowledge the debt. First of all, they want to understand that, that, you're not going to put them through those hoops, which you can. And I've done that before, you know, but show us proof that, in fact, they signed documentation evidencing a debt of some fashion. And oftentimes a lot of these 
companies and collection agencies don't have that paperwork at the ready. Some of these debts are very old. They just get lost in the shuffle. But if they're acknowledging, yeah, yeah, I remember paying that. I, I remember signing on the dotted line. I'm not going to make them go through that whole process. That's usually a good starting point. They acknowledge the debt, but maybe we don't acknowledge that it's the precise amount. We think that's a little high. Or we acknowledge that it is, in fact, that amount, but um, you know, we can only pay, my client can only pay a fraction of that. And now we're in a negotiation. They, they don't want to have to sue your client. A lot of these uh, uh, firms that just do collections work, man, they have just tons of clients. Some big, a lot little. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's better for them, too, if they're able to work something out and they're, you know, you're getting the best from them early on or maybe they can cut it in half or maybe reduce it entirely. So, And so... From that standpoint, I mean, look, obviously, we know every case is going to be a little bit different. Every situation is a little bit different. Um, but, you know, putting together the documents, making that initial decision of, you know, do I agree that I owe this amount, but I can't pay it at this rate? Or do I agree that I owe an amount, but maybe not this amount um, versus I don't agree that I owe any amount? I mean, that's that seems to be the first step that kind of always has to happen in these, you know, preliminary negotiations, let's say. If that's in fact the case, I've also had people approach me and say, I don't remember signing that. I'd like to see proof that I did because I don't recall. I think maybe somebody signed on my behalf. And I've represented plenty of people that did not give the person the authority to sign on to the credit card or what have you. But if they acknowledge the debt, look, I owe this. I'm not sure it's quite that much. Then... It, Usually the entity that you're dealing with, they're not so interested in, in knowing. You can sort of save your responses as to whether you think it's high or what you could prove or whatever. I usually cut to the chase with them and say, what's the least amount that you would accept? And if you want to see what my client's financial picture is, we'll provide it to you. You know, some of them just want to see tax returns or whatever or future business or what have you you know, uh, some kind of statements and, um, you know, and then they're, they're just willing to come up with a number, you know, but they're right. trying to get, sometimes they're at least trying to get pennies on the dollar. And I try to explain this to people that I can't oftentimes get you out of it entirely. Although I have, I have been able to do that when you're able to demonstrate to them, this person has absolutely nothing. Or in one case, it was the guy lost his wife. It was just a cat. She died of cancer. It, it, they, she was working in his business. The business went belly up. So there was like a, you know, we can't factor all the, you know, these people are human beings that the, a lot of people would say that anybody who works collections uh, cease to be human at a certain point, but I'm being a little bit facetious. It's not true. You know, they'll, they'll listen to those kinds of things. And if you've been through something terrible like that or catastrophic, they may agree just to, to write it off. Right. I mean, a lot of what we're talking about here, you know, it's not it's not somebody trying to scam somebody else. It's a situation where, you know, you have a lot of people that obviously we've had some serious um, negative ramifications on, you know, business to consumer businesses. But even on business to business, you know, the the two or three businesses you have that are your largest, uh, you know, monthly uh, clients, they all go bankrupt. And now you're looking at, 
you know, instead of having three $50,000 a month contracts for payment for your services, you've got none of them. Um, you know, so we're not, we're not necessarily talking about people scamming here. We're talking about just situations when finances change. Obviously, a recession would be a, a very consistent reason for that to happen like we're going through now. Yeah, and I would say in most cases, people, when they come to me for help in this regard, they're not trying to say that they didn't incur this debt. You know, it's like other right. areas of the law. You know, we've all practiced a little bit of criminal defense and different things. In most situations, people don't at least you can get them to a point where they say, okay, I admit that I did X, but I don't think I did Y or I don't think I owe this. So some acknowledgement that there was maybe a breach or they didn't pay timely or whatever, that's an excellent starting point when you are, are speaking with the other side because you're like, look, we're not going to make you jump through all those who they admit that they owe at least some of this money. Now you got a framework where you can start you know, dealing with what they can reasonably pay back and so forth. So my, my thing is get with them early, get with them often, you know? And, and from the flip side of this, I mean, when you're coming to it as the one who's owed money, as the creditor, as the one who's, you know, supposed to be receiving the money, I mean, you can have a very similar conversation. It just may be, look, here's the contract you signed. Here's the payment terms. You know, we, we intend to collect something on this. So, you know, what can you do or what payment plan do you need or, you know, what concessions can we make? It's, you know, you can, you can meet halfway from starting from either direction. Sure. And then on the flip side, what is if I, I get people all the time, I got to sue this person. They know they did wrong. They owe me this money. Okay. Do you have some confidence that they have the money to pay you back? Or if right. we go through all the gyrations of a lawsuit and, you know, what the expense could be from an attorney, attorney's fees perspective and so forth. Are we going to be holding a judgment that's not worth anything? You know, and well, you know, we get a lot, and then people judge that in a lot of different ways. Oh, well, they drive a nice car, or you know, they dress nicely, or they throw lavish dinner parties. You know, before COVID, people did that sometimes. Uh, you know, they, they, that sometimes the ju judgment is a little bit skewed. You know, it, it's not a proper reflection of what they either have or don't have. And then the um, oh, and then the other thing that we talk about there, we also don't don't we also have to acknowledge the time it takes to recover. I mean, even if even if they are collectible, even if they are, um, even if they do agree, even if there is everything good to go, you know, it could be six months, nine months, a year, two years just to get that judgment or just to get that money collected. And so you may be sitting in a position where, yes, your business is owed, you know, seventy five thousand dollars. But in two years, you'd be out of business as opposed to with $50,000 now, you'd be able to continue to run long enough to get the next client, the next contract, the next, you know, whatever it's going to be. Absolutely. And then there's always the possibility that if it's not a secured debt, that the person could or the company could declare bankruptcy, you know? Right. Uh, and I've heard that from different sides of the aisle to people who come to see me. If they're a business, hey, you know, we're right on the cusp of declaring bankruptcy. Uh, a lot of people will tell you that, even if that's not necessarily the case, you know. Um, and on the other side, I'm about to declare personal bankruptcy. So if they want some money, you know, this is the time I've got a little bit that I can look forward to them or whatever. Makes sense. 
Um, and so, you know, what other, so we talked about that, you know, open line of communication. And again, you know, the two parties can agree to, you know, anything legal, they can waive any breach, they can change the terms at any time, you know, somebody has to file suit to try and enforce the contract as currently written. Um, we talked about the potential for mediation, either formally or informally. We talked about obviously, you know, going through the court system and getting that judgment and then, you know, potentially enforcing that judgment. So I want I know, um, I want to talk about demand letters. And then I want to see, you know, if there's anything else that we're missing there. So from the standpoint of you being owed the money, you know, a lot of times what we'll do is that, you know, strongly worded letter with, you know, here's all the proof of the information. Here's the law that's on point. Here's the signed contract. Here's whatever else. And I know a lot of times we'll even attach the, uh, the complaint to it. We just won't file the complaint and right. say, look, you know, you've got X number of days to do, to do this, pay this, perform this service, whatever, or will file suit or I'll inform my client that, you know, now's the time to take further precautions or, you know, whatever, whatever the language is in there. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and that's dictated primarily by, you know, that's why it's so important to understand the relationship. If there is one, sometimes, sometimes these are very close relationships between people that are suing each other. And sometimes they're, they're not. In those situations where they are, they were partners and they fell out and this person has a promissory note that they need to pay up or what have you. Now, I oftentimes will go to them and say, you know this person or you know this company. Should we issue a letter that gives them seven days to communicate with me or, you know, uh, a certain amount of time to, you know, to, to issue us a check for the money that's owed? Things of that nature. You know, you, you have to listen to your client in terms of, you know, what you could expect there to be a response. Oftentimes they'll, they'll say, we could try a demand letter, but I really don't think they're going to respond to a demand letter. I know them and you got to sue them to get their attention. And, you know, I would encourage other attorneys, don't disregard what your client's saying about that stuff out of hand. They oftentimes know who they're dealing with pretty well, you know? Yeah. You just have to sort of take that into account and, 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 kind of try and follow your client's wishes in that regard. All right. So I want to get into, you know, enforcement techniques once you have that judgment. But before that, um, you know, any other topics we need to talk about prior to that enforcement standpoint? I mean, I don't want to get too much into filing the lawsuit and arguing the lawsuit and motions for summary judgment. But in terms of these, you know, the steps before that, any other kind of pre-suit techniques you use consistently? Well, just one thing that I wanted to point out, which is that if you are writing a letter and you're attempting to collect a debt, it's best practices to include a copy of the federal statute governing Fair Debt Collections, the Fair Debt Collections Practices Act. Um, you can potentially, you the attorney, you the person that you're doing this on behalf of can potentially face sanctions if you don't properly follow or include that notice, okay? Because it's basically just an understanding that they have 30 days to pay the debt. Um, but also that this is not, I think part of it also is it's not a shakedown. It's not a, you know, you're, um, you're practicing within the construct of the statute. And, you, and you're also saying that you have good faith evidence to believe that there is a debt owed, you know? So I would say when in doubt, if you're not, because some things, are they a debt? Are they not? It's money that's owed. It's not a promissory note. It's not. When in doubt, I issue those letters, and uh, because to be on the safe side, 
And I explain to my clients that I'm erring on the side of caution, you know? Um, so that's just one thing I wanted to make sure that we covered before we moved on. Yeah, the, the, I think that's a good point because the last thing that you want to do and the thing that we unfortunately see so many people do is they give up a ton of leverage by doing things like that because now, you know, their client may have previously had the high ground, may have previously had a signed contract, may have previously had it, a pretty airtight case, but now is potentially facing, you know, some sort of consumer protection payment for more than the debt right. and just because, you know, they didn't send the letter properly. Yeah, exactly. So, All right, so then let's jump ahead to enforcement. So... Um, negotiating didn't work. The demand letter didn't work. Mediation didn't work. We went to court, you know, we won, which is not to say that we always win, but, you know, I like to think we win the the vast majority of the time. Um, We've got that piece of paper, but now, you know, we've got to enforce that piece of paper. So walk me through, you know, kind of briefly, I know we do, uh, I know there's a lot of techniques and tricks here, but from a a 10,000 foot overview for that enforcement thing, I mean, what kind of steps are we talking about? What sort of opportunities are there? Uh, what are some of the ways to make sure that that piece of paper, that judgment gets paid? Well, uh, one thing that we can do is investigate to see um, what, if any, assets can be attached, bank accounts could be attached. Um, you know, if they're a salaried employee, can their wages be garnished? And there are statutory schemes that cover all of those things. So if you're fairly confident that you have knowledge that they have assets that can be attached, then you can just go forward with the process of attaching the assets. There's an opportunity for the person to, um, you know, to, to file a response in garnishment actions and in different actions like that. Um, but, uh, you know, oftentimes if you've got the goods on that, then you simply, you know, do your, perfect your attachments or liens or whatever you need to do whether it's a lien on real property or what have you. And those are good ways to collect. Now, in most situations, you don't really know what the person's financial picture looks like. And that's where post-judgment discovery becomes so important. And it's just like regular discovery. You you can um, send out interrogatories directed towards the individual's finances, Uh, interrogatories, requests for admissions, production of documents, and then ultimately set them up for a deposit, what's called a deposition in aid of execution, in aid, aid of executing the judgment, right? So you're, you're basically conducting a whole discovery process around what their assets look like. And again, you know, just sometimes, sometimes usually discovery is the longest process in a lawsuit just because there could be multiple stages, setting depositions, coordinating calendars, giving people, you know, for the right time to respond, potentially them requesting extensions. So, you know, you, if the lawsuit itself takes nine months, 12 months, you could be looking at, you know, a similar time frame or more on this side because you're going back through a whole nother discovery process. Well, there are also other rules that uh, apply post-judgment that don't apply pre-judgment where you have to provide like fact information sheets about basic information and so forth. If you are the the dead or the defendant in these kinds of cases, so it can be bifurcated a little bit. And uh, you know, you, you have more leeway, I believe. I would defer to some other attorneys that you know just do this day in and day out. But I think you got a little more um, leeway in terms of setting the deposition and not having to coordinate everything with opposing counsel and with uh, 
you know, with the debtor themselves, and if they fail to show up for some of this stuff, because there's there's an understanding that there's an urgency to being able to execute the judgment, right? Because of course, there's a possibility that people could be moving their assets around or, you know, doing all kinds of nefarious things. So I guess the short version is uh, a short answer to your question is uh, they're on a shorter leash when it's post judgment. I, I think that's a fair statement. Okay. So um, any other, you know, key stages that show up in a lot of these enforcement cases that we need to talk about? Um, well, obviously a mediation, right? A mediation during the course of the actual court proceeding, right? So they file a lawsuit, there's an answer. Um, in a lot of these credit debt situations, it's pretty cut and dry whether the person owes the money or not. Right. From a legal standpoint, if you're the creditor, you're oftentimes looking at a motion for summary judgment, right? Which is there's no genuine issue of material fact because you sign here, you agreed to pay this, you either didn't pay it at all or you didn't pay it in a timely fashion, and therefore uh, there should be a judgment in our favor. So, but, but for all this, you're talking about during the pendency of the original suit, right? You're not talking yeah. about during the enforcement. No, part, correct. Right? correct. Right. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, so so once that paper already exists for the for the enforcement side. You know, what are the other main stages? I mean, you're talking about the ability to potentially garnish wages. You might be able to attach property or other assets. You know, you may be able to um, get like a rid of possession for certain things. Yeah, you know, lien what, against real property. Or as I said, you know, a whole discovery process where you're finding out precisely what items they have or they don't have. Um, it's, you know, there, there's a lot of protection afforded to people that have certain investments. Uh, you know, they're... Uh, well, a couple of things that you have to look at is, you know, whether they have, whether they're going to get protection through their 401k or their IRA, oftentimes you're not able to garnish or attach wages out of, you know, personal uh, or retirement accounts and things of that nature. Um, you also have to be mindful of whether, and this is where discovery becomes so important. You know, oftentimes the debtor is not just a debtor to your client. Right. I think we all understand that intuitively, but they have other fish to fry. Uh, for example, maybe they, there's an IRS lien against them or you know, levy or something like that, which may certainly take precedent over, precedence over what they have to pay your clients. So it's also finding out or getting a picture of what other what other things are out there. And that's why discovery can be so important as well. You know, yeah, you were the 10th person to sue me. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm running out of money and I haven't declared bankruptcy yet. Or I have a huge IRS lien and then you have to work either around that or find out what the status of that is. Right. And obviously also, you know, Florida gives um, creditor protection to home to a homestead property. Correct. And then you also might have money in a trust that would have creditor protection, which is listing this person as the beneficiary. And, and I believe, of, and I believe one one of your vehicles as well, up to a certain value, and and yeah, exactly. So um, you know, you're not going to lose your home in general, uh, pursuant to a collection matter, if you could demonstrate that it's your homestead. In other words, it's your primary place of occupation. You get your mail there. You're you're not just passing through. It's not a vacation home, and you know, you're right. half the year and all the different tests that you look at. You know. 
All right. Well, we've been going for uh, about 40 minutes. So anything else that we need to cover along those lines? I don't think so. Uh, just bear in mind, you know, when you're thinking about suing somebody for, um, you know, over a collection matter, you know, think about all the different alternatives first before you do that. Because like I, I, I tend to sometimes throw cold water on this for people that are hot to sue somebody, primarily because they don't like them. You know, that, that's often, you can't factor that out too. A person that owes you or an entity that owes you a lot of money tend not to have good feelings about that person. And that could sometimes color your judgment where you want an attorney to go in there and just hammer away at them. But you have to ask the question, do they have the ability to pay? Um, is it make more sense for us to try to negotiate something with them? Can we get them to acknowledge the debt? And it's really better for them if you try to look at those things up front, because, you know, as we've talked about at great length, I think you can win the battle and lose the war, you know, right. I remember early on in my career and then I'll shut up. But um, it was one of the first civil cases I had. Uh, I was working at a firm and we had a great case and uh, you know, we ended up winning a non-jury trial and I got a judgment for, you know, $24,000 against the guy, which uh, it was, it was over a personal debt. I was really happy. Um, I was like, okay, we're, we're off to the races. And then I think the guy moved to like South America or something, went into the witness protection program and we never heard from him again. And I probably at that stage in my career didn't brace him enough. I had not been down that road enough. Right. But, you know, I prepared for that. I mean, there weren't indications that he was going to do something like that. He showed up for the trial. Right. But then I have to have the, and it was a great guy on top of it. He comes in and I'm having to explain to him, you know, this piece of paper is worth nothing if we can't get this guy served. And I don't think we ever found him. So it was a lesson to me. And obviously, you know, we learn from our hard lessons that we need to prepare clients up front for that. All right. So I think that's a, I think that's a good jumping off point from there. So, to any of our, you know, business owner listeners here, if you're in this position, either, you know, owing the money or being owed the money, uh, talking to an attorney sooner rather than later is better because the more pot committed everybody gets, the more people tend to uh, draw their line in the sand. So hypothetically, should you have a need like this, you may want to reach out to a firm like Jordan Law at 407-906-5529 and chat with Blair for a little bit about what's going on. Uh, or check out our website at jordanlawfl.com. So, all right, then let me do one more pitch. If you've enjoyed this video and the rest of them, go ahead and please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Mark has the link here at the bottom on there. Um, as you all may know, at 100 subscribers, YouTube allows you to have a branded URL, so we are currently not at 100 subscribers. Uh, so we are some gobbledygook YouTube slash channel slash I don't know. I really want it to be YouTube slash channel slash Jordan Law FL. So if you've made it this far in the video, uh, if you want to go head over to YouTube and subscribe, that would be great. You just have to have a Gmail account. And then I will see you all back here tomorrow at 1 o'clock for Andy Storch's presentation. Um, for those of you that don't know Andy, Andy has a wonderful, varied knowledge base and experience in dealing with businesses and their growth and leadership and all those. So we've got some really wonderful things to happen in the discussion tomorrow. You're not going to want to miss that. And then also be on the lookout for our um, shows for next week. We've got some great speakers lined up next week and we'll see you back here tomorrow at one o'clock. 
thank you all for joining us. Blair, thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Jordan. Mark, feel better soon.